Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 to 38 and 42 to 50. Let's say together a prayer as we hear the word. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he is determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead, the body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, and as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For the past several weeks here at Skyview, we have been engaged in a series of messages titled, This Is Us. I like what I see. We learned that everyone is gifted with something that God has not withheld anything that we need to be the church that we are called to be, and that he has and continues to give our church gifts so that we may together fulfill our mission to the world. We've also learned that we are needy, that it's not just about me and Jesus. We truly need one another, and we're better together than on our own. We've learned that we are lovers. Oh, especially around potluck times. But we've learned that all gifts in ministry are of no kingdom effect if that Christ-like love is not central to our personal lives and to the life of our community. And then we've learned that we are saved. This is us. We are saved people. To be saved means to receive the grace that God has given us and to live free from that power of sin as we live gracious lives towards other people. Last week we learned we are resurrected people. This is us, a resurrected people. That is those who live believing in the resurrection of Christ. We have the hope of resurrection. Not only for one day when we die, but Christ's resurrection enables you and me to live lives marked by hope in the present. And so over the next few moments, I would like to continue looking at this hopeful idea of the resurrection. What will our bodies look like after we're resurrected? 
We're going to be digging into Paul's words here to the Corinthians as found in this passage, 1 Corinthians 1, or 15 verses 35 through 38, and then 42 through 50. Now, anybody heard the gentleman named George Bernard Shaw? He once made this quote, the statistics on death, on death are impressive, one out of one people die. Right? And as Christians, you and I, we have to come to grips with this idea of mortality, a natural death. Now, I've lived enough years on a farm and around farms to appreciate this life cycle of life and death. Because death affects us all at some point or other in our lives, doesn't it? Well, it was 2004 on August the 3rd. And my husband, Kelly, had taken one week off from ministry for a family holiday. Our children, Rayleigh and Brock, were 10 years old and 8 years old. And we were going to go to family camp at Camp Hermatton. Oh, we were excited. Kelly uh, had been involved full-time in Kidstown ministry. And while it was an exciting ministry to be part of, the crazy summer schedule didn't allow for much downtime. And this, in fact, was to be our first family holiday in years. And some of you here know the story. On that Tuesday, I was called in to the local hospital in Olds after being told a cycling accident had occurred. You see, Kelly had gone out on a 120K ride with his brother. They were training for another uh, ride from Jasper down to Calgary. Who does that? They did, not me. I was at the fire pit. (laughs) Well, once at the hospital, the news that was given to me changed our lives forever. Kelly had suffered a major heart attack at age 36, and he had died almost immediately. Now, we had been regular attenders. In fact, Kelly had been on staff here at Skyview Church. And several of you here were so kind and compassionate during those days. And on August 11, we held a funeral for Kelly back at Camp Hermatton. And before the service, we planned a private family gathering at the Hermatton Cemetery to bury Kelly. There's still spots available. I think they're only $500 if you're interested. Lovely little country cemetery. Well, there's many details about that time that I don't remember. But there's one real clear recollection I have. A group of us were quietly standing around waiting for the funeral home to bring Kelly to the graveside. And I heard loud, excited voices off close to where we were going to bury Kelly. And as I looked around, I saw my eight-year-old son, Brock, and his buddy, Rick Ewing. And they're kneeling down right by the edge of the grave, like they could have fallen in. And their little keisters were up in the air, and they're looking straight down into this hole, and they're all excited. And some of their comments were, wow, look how deep that is. You could put a lot of stuff in here. I wonder how they made those edges, they're so straight. It must have been a really big knife. And on and on they exclaimed about something that for many of us, would represent sadness and grief. But for them, this well-prepared hole in the ground was more literal than mournful. Now, I know Brock had understood that his daddy had died, but I wasn't sure how much he understood this was going to impact him. So if you fast forward to February 17, 2011, my father, and I love that man, had passed away that morning My mom was there, as well as myself and my two sisters. And Rayleigh was there. It was a very peaceful home going. 
And now my family and those of my two sisters, we gathered with mom in her home, and we were beginning to plan uh, the final details for my dad's service. The lovely lady who had guided us through Kelly's final details happened to also be the one assisting us with my dad's details. Can you tell we're from small towns, right? Now, I'm not sure how, but Brock, who was by about 15 years old then, must have remembered her, and he asked her out of the blue, he goes, so what does my dad look like today? And that funeral director didn't even skip a beat. She looked at Brock and she said, well, we made special preparations on your dad's body. So his body should look almost exactly the same as when you saw him last, even seven years later. You would notice a couple of differences though, Brock, because even after a person dies, the hair and the nails appear to continue to grow. Did you know that? So his hair and his nails would be much longer than when you last saw him. And then the two chatted a little more about that and we moved back to our original planning. You see, there's something about death and what comes, oh yeah, now you come in, Rick. I just <laughs> talked about you in the service. There's something about death and what comes next that is fascinating to so many of us. Is there such a thing as life after death? Absolutely. The Apostle Paul specifically addressed that, and you looked at it last week. But who's satisfied with that, right? Don't we want to know more? Like, for those who place their faith in God, as my dad did, as Kelly did, dear loved ones who have lived so faithfully and sacrificially for them, for him, what happens to their bodies? What do their resurrected bodies look like? Will I recognize them? And perhaps even more importantly, will they recognize me? Do you ever ask those questions? This question about our bodies was posed to Paul from the Corinthians. And as we look at these verses, we have to remember Paul was writing to the believers from Corinth, a city of great diversity. Right, religious and social, it was a major trading center for the region. Now some of those believers were Jewish, and so Judaism itself was divided on this very issue. Is there such a thing as resurrection? What is Sheol as only being the grave? And then others began to understand and take in these teachings of Jesus Christ. But another reason for the confusion is that Corinth was a Greek city, and Greeks were heavily influenced by the philosophies of a man named Plato. And that philosophy was known as dualism. Look at all the stuff we're learning today which divides things into two parts, good and evil kind of matter. The good stuff was that which we could not see. Matter was our bodies, which they decided wasn't any good at all. And so they did, found it difficult to believe in the resurrection of a body, which would be not good matter. For them, the body was something to leave behind gladly, good riddance. And their focus was the preservation of the soul. So this week's section of text bluntly raises the question these Corinthian people have been asking. What might a resurrected corpse look like? And their objections to the belief in this resurrection could certainly come because of the repulsion of the corpses. So we have to understand where they're thinking and where they were coming from. If this God insists on raising bodies, well, what are those repulsive bodies going to look like? 
No, Carla works. She's an associate professor of New Testament at our Wesleyan Theological Seminary. She reminds us that these concerns for the Corinthians are understandable, right? In an age without access to health care, life in normal bodies was not necessarily a healthy existence for them. For the majority in the Roman Empire, life was hard. Food was scarce. And with a lack of nutrition, with disabilities or conditions that were common, like poor eyesight, all of those things were a big part of their civilization. Life expectancy was low. Less than 50% of children lived there to see the age of 10. Death was simply a part of their everyday life. And so hoping to escape a physical body that was less, less than healthy was not an unreasonable hope for these people. Really, the thinking was, let's not place any hope in the body. It might have even been something to look forward to, to be rid of our bodies. And Paul is convincing them that God made our physical bodies, and in fact, he longs to redeem them. Leon Morris in the Tyndale Commentary, sorry, shares some understanding about Paul's way of communicating a bodily resurrection. Now, these Greek skeptics were trying to show how absurd this resurrection really was. What kind of body would arise from a heap of decomposed rubbish? And so after Paul addressed them warmly by calling them fools, which today we would translate as idiots, he gave them the answer to their objection through something that they saw and did every day. He talked about seeds. And every one of his listeners will have sown seeds, which were destroyed, at least in the form that they sown it in, right? With a little hard uh, around it. The act of sowing was kind of like a burial. And it was so similar to what follows death amongst mankind that Paul spoke about the grain of the seed as dying. And when he carried on that metaphor, the growth that follows is a giving of new life. And that new life does not come until the grain first dies. You see, that seed has to be destroyed if the new life is going to appear. And I think you and I today, we can become so familiar with this idea of gardening and growing crops and the marvel of harvest that it's dulled our sense of wonder. When you see a seed in that little brown shell, how in the world does a beautiful, green, flourishing plant come out of there? So let me ask this question. What if we didn't have that knowledge? Like, what if you and I did not know that out of a seed would come a plant? How would you and I ever... Like, who's the first person that put a seed in the ground and watered it and said, and now I'm going to grow an apple tree? Who was the smart one to do that? Why in the light of this should we regard as incredible the transformation of a dead body? It is not the body that will be what is sown. Paul will say the body that is raised is incomparably more glorious than the body that is buried. So rather than looking at this physical body that is decaying as a sign that there must be no such thing as a resurrection, that same body, that brown shell, merely is preparing the truth that the body that is raised is going to be so much more wonderful, so much more glorious. And plant life is always on hand to teach us. 
And God bless all of you that are out here doing your landscaping. It looks lovely out here. You see, we sow nothing more than that brown shell. Might be corn or something else. Something that's common to all seeds. And it's sowing, there's no indication of the plant with its stems and its leaves and its flowers. And yet they come. And yet there they are, every time. You see, there's a combination of identity and yet difference. Plants do not rise, and people do not rise of their own volition or decision. So the seed doesn't decide one day, that is too much work to push that dirt. I am staying right here. Right? Or somebody saying, I worked hard for 85 years. I am not going anywhere. I'm staying right here in this casket. Right? We don't do that by our own decision. And it doesn't happen by chance. We do it because it's the way God has determined it shall be. Now, when Paul speaks about bodily resurrection... He's not advocating for, as Carly describes, a zombie apocalypse. And it's no wonder that we think that way. We've all heard sermons about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, haven't we? And how his body would have already been decomposing. You see, the good news Paul is talking about here is not the resuscitation of a, delayed, of a decayed corpse. Okay? So what happened with Lazarus was God raised that body from the dead... But guess what happened a number of years later? He died again. See, he wasn't living in his resurrected body. He's still living in his natural body that God had raised from the dead. You see, it's the transformation of the body into a body that has not been corrupted by the powers of sin and of death. You and I, we have no idea what that is because we were born with sin. The whole created order, in fact, has suffered under sin's superpower. And all of creation, people, animals, nature, all of us are groaning and longing for the redemption, for the return of Jesus Christ. And none of God's creation has remained untouched or uncorrupted by sin, including our bodies. And in this passage, Paul is describing for us the transformation of a body that's been remade, renewed, and then he points out what the differences are between the natural body and the resurrected one. The first one that he says is the transformation of the body moves from a perishable one to imperishable. Now right now, you and I have the ability to sustain life over a period of time. But take a look around the room this morning. We are a group of people that are falling apart. (laughs) Some of us have hearing aids. I have my reading glasses. Some of us have plastic hips or pacemakers, right? False teeth. Some of us might be losing our hair. I don't know. But friends, we are falling apart. And we know that if we die before our Lord's return, our bodies are going to perish completely. Yet... And this gives us hope. When you and I are resurrected, our new bodies will be different. Why? They're not perishable. They become imperishable. That's right. Second point that Paul says is our bodies move from a place of dishonor to one of glory. Now, even today in our physical bodies, you need to know that there is value and potential 
for honoring and glorifying God. However, it's true that our bodies today can be characterized by disgrace and shame and indignity. And it may well be that Paul is saying here, so often it's with these bodies that we dishonor God. In other words, we may use our hands to steal or to commit violence to someone else. We use our lips to gossip. We use our tongues to lie. Our feet carry us to places we best not go. Or our eyes linger on unholy sights. Father, forgive us. But in the life to come, our bodies will no longer be servants of our own passion and impulses. We will instead be instruments of a holy and a glorious God. You know, the Greek word used here means splendor, brightness, excellence, blessedness, and honor. What will that be like for someone to say that about you? Oh, excellent one. Blessed are you. What a beautiful word picture of redemption. From dishonor and shame to splendor and blessedness. The third thing that he contrasts it with is from weakness to power. Now, have you noticed that everyone wants to live a long time, but no one wants to grow old? Right? It's true. My mom has said to me more than once, Rose, never grow old. It's no fun. <laughs> okay, mom. Right? We think we're so strong, but a virus invisible to the eye can knock us flat for days on end, can't it? Sooner or later, we grow old and our bodies begin to break down. Now, aren't you glad you came to church to hear this encouraging message? <laughs> Eventually, our bodies, they just stop working altogether. But in contrast to these weak bodies, our resurrection bodies, oh, they're going to be extremely powerful. We will never grow weary or weak. See, we don't even understand that. Since there will be no need to nap, we may no longer have to listen to someone snoring anymore. You see, living with a resurrected body will be so radically different than our lifestyles here on earth. And this word power in the original language, it means strength or ability that resides in something by virtue of its nature. It's something that brings glory to God. But then he keeps continuing to contrast these bodies. He says these bodies are natural. We are going to go to spiritual now, the Greek word here for natural, I used to think it's something we could touch and feel it's going down. What it means is something that is governed by our souls, by our passions, our desires, our feelings. I don't know if you've ever felt that way, right? We do or not do based on how we feel at the time. That's, it's a hard thing to overcome. That's because we live in the natural body. But a spiritual body means our bodies are governed by the Spirit of God. That's the difference. Notice this verse does not say that in the resurrection we will become a disembodied spirit. Amen. You may have heard that, that we're floating around, right? I don't know what a spirit looks like. It's because there's no, we're not doing that. The verse specifically states that we will each be given a spirit-governed body. Amen. In other words, instead of being led by our own desires and pleasures and wants, we are led by the Spirit of God himself. What will that be like? 
And we no longer have to fight against carnal desires and feelings of apathy or anger or woundedness at someone's words when the Spirit will fully be in control of us. Doesn't that sound wonderful? These bodies are all that we know, and they're perishable and weak and dishonorable and, and natural. But can you conceive of something that is totally the opposite of those? So far from an image of decaying corpses, the resurrected body sounds glorious. It's not the epitome of disease or weakness, but the epitome of strength and a power. Now there's one more contrast that Paul gives the Corinthians. He says we move from the first Adam to the last Adam. And there's no question in the minds of either Paul or the Corinthians or all the Greeks there that all people are earthy. Right? Our bodies are earthy. They share in the corruption and the part of earthly things. But you see, if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, not only are you earthy, but you're also heavenly because of your relationship to Christ. This means that Christ's people will be like him. So go turn over some tables. No, I don't know. Right? Jesus showed us what a resurrected body will look like. After his resurrection, remember Jesus told Mary, don't cling to me. And then he walked through doors. He appeared, he disappeared. Remember the men on the road to Emmaus walked with him for miles? But it wasn't until they broke bread at the dinner table together they recognized who Jesus was. He could walk through walls and disappear, but he could also eat real food. Remember how he shared the fish with the disciples at breakfast? And his resurrected body still bore the marks of his earthly likeness, where the nails had been, where the spear had, had punctured his side. Friends, our resurrected bodies are going to be like Jesus. The marks of this life, and I know you have a few, especially the marks of any suffering that you have done because of your love for Jesus, they'll be evident. Although you'll be completely whole, and completely well. The resurrection body of Christ shows us something of what life is going to be like for believers in that new world that our resurrection is going to usher in. So let me finish this morning by answering the question, so what? So what? Does it really matter what happens to our bodies, natural and spiritual? It's not like we can fully control it anyway. Right? Why the big fuss over arms and legs and hands and feet and hair and eyes and tongues? It seems so earthy. We might say all that really matters, our Sunday school answers, is loving Jesus, loving others, having joy and peace. Well, here's three quick reasons why it matters what we think. First one is this. Because our physical universe was created by God and it exists to glorify God. Now if you skip back a few chapters to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you will see God did not create the physical universe willy-nilly. That's a word, isn't it? God actually had a reason to add the ways his glory is externalized and made manifest. It says the skies are telling the glory of God. That's why he made them. You know what? Your body fits into that same category of physical things that God created for this reason. He's not going to back out on his plan to glorify himself through human beings and human bodies. 
So 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your holy body. That body Paul is speaking of is the one that you and I are using today. Look at the temples all around us. The Holy Spirit is all around us. So glorify God with your body. The second reason why it matters what we think is this. We are to be honoring the work of Jesus. Now why would God go to all the trouble to dirty his hands as it were, to reestablish these bodies and then clothe them with immortality? It's because God's son paid the price of his life so that God could be glorified in you forever and ever. Remember, you were bought with a price. So therefore, glorify God with your bodies. See, God's not going to dishonor the work of his son. That's why he will raise your body. Now, the sting of death is sin. I think we sung about that this morning. But Christ bore the curse of sin. This is something I talked about with my friend Darlene Hyatt last week. You know, sometimes we, we hear about Jesus on the cross and we think that, that Jesus just gathers all of our sin and holds it in his arms and he dies with it. No, he didn't just hold, carry our sin. He became our sin. What is that like for a holy, holy God? Thanks be to God who gives the victory through Jesus Christ. You see, when Christ died, he forgave sin, he fulfilled the law, and he defeated death. Therefore, God will honor the work of his son by raising your body from the dead, and you will use your body to glorify him forever and ever. And that's why you have a body now. That's why it will be raised imperishable, that you and I may continue to glorify him. Friends, I hope our passage this morning is one of encouragement to you, that death is not the end. And I don't know where you're at in your journey. You might have encountered death very recently. You might still be carrying some death from years ago. But I want to encourage you, through Jesus Christ, we have the hope of eternal life. Friends, this is us. We are eternal. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ and one of his disciples, you are eternal. And so as we move now into a time around the Lord's table, I want to read for you the last few verses from this chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. So where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper, the table of remembrance, is the place where we regularly pause and we contemplate the significance of what Jesus has done for us. We were born sinful. We know our innermost thoughts, and sometimes I shudder. How could I even think that way? You ever had those moments? Where did that come from? And we feel the weight of the aging years, even from youth. 
We mourn the many losses that are part of this life, the loss of a job, the loss of a friendship, maybe the rusting of our cars, the failure of my eyesight, the breaking down of a marriage, the emptiness of a bank account, the injustices seen around our globe, refugees with no place to go, epidemics running rogue over entire populations, human trafficking and people looking the other way, we are constantly reminded that something is wrong in this world and we so desperately need a savior. Friends, we have one. God has not left us alone. He has brought life to us. In fact, so bold is the defiance, so steadfast and utterly assured is the claim that the scriptures taunt death itself. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? And so at this table gathered around the bread, which represents his body was given for us, and the cup, which is representing his blood, is poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. We celebrate this new life, which is to be found through Jesus Christ. So this morning, if that's where you're at, you recognize that you are dying in your sin, that you indeed need a rescuer, you need a savior. We invite you to come and take the bread and the cup, confessing your need to Jesus. We're gonna join together now and eat and drink these elements as we celebrate this new life, this eternal life, the transformed life that comes through Jesus, amen.